Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So the average person out there does not think about climate change 24-7. I hope not, right? It's pretty depressing most days of the week. We need new technologies, more energy-efficient technology. And how do you do that? Well, you set the right incentives, and then you get out of the way. What if we had a show about solutions? Not the same old left versus right. I am right, right. and you are wrong. Boring. (laughs) Yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, before we start our show, we love hearing from listeners, and you can do that by going to our website, howdowefixit.me. We heard from uh, Lori in Los Angeles about last week's show and insurance. She's just had her health insurance policy changed, and her provider is no longer going to be giving the kind of health insurance that she's had this year in 2016. And so there's clearly a problem for her at least, and for many other people. Oh, this is, this is with, a national with, problem. With, yeah. with the choices on health insurance. So it's great to hear from people. And I think that what this email has, has meant to me is we really need to do a show on health insurance. Right. We love hearing from listeners. Love to get your emails. We read every one. And, and we'll take your ideas for future shows. So, Jim, the last show we did was about insurance. How can you be smart about dealing with the risk for disaster? So today, the case for insurance or risk reduction for the planet, climate change. There is a wide range of estimates. And if we really look at worst case scenarios in terms of of possible climate change, it could be something like a 10% chance of really catastrophic outcomes. Some people say, oh, it's only 10%. Flip that around. What if 10% is actually kind of a lot? Yeah, this is the show for climate skeptics. I mean, I, because I think this is the most powerful argument for doing something. It's not that we know what's going to happen. It's that we have no idea what's going right, to happen. Right, right. So our guest today is economist Gernot Wagner. He's the author of Climate Shock, The Economic Consequences of a Hotter Planet. And Gernot's also senior economist at the Environmental Defense Fund, joins us in the studio today on How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. I'm Jim Meggs. And Gernot, you argue we don't know what's going to happen in the future, which I must say is kind of refreshing compared to what you hear from many economists and many skeptics who seem to think they know exactly what's going to happen. Well, it does turn out, of course, right? we know enough to act, Adding CO2 into the atmosphere warms the planet. 
this is not a secret anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah, because one of the things I've learned from you is that we've had this link to uh, carbon emissions and climate change for how long? Well, forever, essentially, right? We've had the link forever. Now we've known about it for over a century. So this is not a secret, right? 1896, literally, 19th century science was when we figured out that adding CO2 into the atmosphere warms global average temperatures by a certain amount. Uh, the greenhouse effect is what makes life worth living on this planet, what makes life possible on this planet. So that said, the what we know has proven to be not nearly enough to prompt us to action. And this is where we go to the right, known unknowns or yeah. the yeah. unknowables for that matter. Right, right. The black swan. There uh, we go, yes. So as uh, somebody who spends a lot of time on the more conservative side of the the, the blogosphere and, and yeah, You media, have a lot to answer for. <laughs> so I'm exposed to a lot of climate skeptics, and, and I, I don't agree with them, but I, I do have a little bit of a sympathy for how they got to their position. But we'll come back to that. But one of the things that you often hear from climate skeptics that to me is a real fallacy is, well, nobody can say for sure what's going to happen. Therefore, why should we do anything? Therefore, I'm sure nothing's going to happen. You don't have to know exactly how much CO2 forces global warming to at least worry about it. I mean, the idea that you can be confident that we can dump tons of CO2 in the atmosphere and nothing's going to happen. I mean, that's the one outcome that just defies any kind of logic. Exactly. Right. I mean, and this is where we are immediately with the insurance analogy. Right, mm -hmm. It's not like you get car insurance because you hope that you will have to use it. Right, You get car insurance just in case. And Richard, you mentioned the 10% figure before, right? So, I mean, this is a fairly conservative, lowercase conservative. This is this, this, is this idea that there's a 10% risk of some kind of climate catastrophe in the future if we do nothing. So unless we act, we will experience major disruptions. We're already experiencing them, right? Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Irene, hitting New York within a year. Right. right. Now, a lot of this comes down to just what is the factor by which we think CO2 drives warming? Walk us through the range of possible outcomes from the relatively benign case to the 10% most severe case. The most significant link here is between CO2 in the atmosphere, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and eventual global average warming. That's called climate sensitivity. Okay, and CO2 is, is carbon, the amount of carbon in the Earth's carbon atmosphere. Carbon dioxide, exactly. Right. We know we are increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's not a secret, right? There's no, there's no opinion about this. Those are the facts. We can measure that. Yeah, and, and, and it was, what, 280 parts per million before... before the industrialization started back exactly. in the 18th century. Yes. Okay, and now we're up to what? We are up to 400. Okay. So we've already increased those levels by about 40 and 400, of course, right, is a nice round number. We just passed it last year, and that makes a big difference. Now, global average temperatures have already warmed by about 0.8 degrees centigrade. So, so you're an Austrian, so you, so you say centigrade. So I guess I'm not American on that one, yes, right? So I believe... So, so what is it, 2.2 2 or... A degree and a half, basically, okay. right? On average. Now, turns out that's the global average. Bad news for your beachfront property. Mm -hmm. um, so we've already experienced this. This is hitting home. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Already. You know, Gernot, a lot of this is kind of personal for me. I mean, I, I was literally an environmentalist in middle school. I remember the first Earth Day. Everybody is, right? Every 12-year-old 12, <laughs> right. is an environmentalist. <laughs> right. My father was an economist, Chicago school, and I can remember Milton Friedman talking about these issues back in the 70s. He was surprisingly uh, supportive of the right kind of um, environmental regulation that would empower markets to solve the problem rather than top-down regulation. But So you're an economist. Tell us a little bit about your background. In the I field. am, yes. And I mean, I, I can't claim I'm a Milton Friedman school economist, but I'm not too surprised that he would be somebody who says socializing the costs of climate change is not the way to go. So, uh, no, I didn't study at the University of Chicago. I studied sort of economist college, sort of saltwater economics. I was at Stanford and and, and, and at Harvard, <laughs> right on the coasts. But this, I mean, this is not a partisan issue. It just, it's just not. Not socializing the costs of what we do is, it's, it's not green or brown or anything. It's just good economics. So you're an economist who studied this whole field I'm an economist first, right? And yes, I mean, frankly, so yes, I work for the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, but this is standard economics. There's no spin involved here. I mean, this is this is economics 101, right? 102 maybe on some days. But right, right. Actually, not, so it's it, not rocket surgery. Sorry. Right? So <laughs> in, those, in those days as a budding environmentalist, I mean, the Environmental Defense Fund was the first environmental organization I ever joined, it's always been set apart from other environmental organizations by being extremely pragmatic. EDF sometimes gets criticized by other environmentalists, is willing to work with industry, willing to work with government. Let's figure out a way that works and test it and study it instead of just imagining that we can all return to some sort of Rousseauian pre-industrial fairyland. In your book, Climate Shock, which is a really good read and highly easy readable. to get through. Yeah, yeah, really readable. And gosh, there are a lot of there are a lot of notes for anybody who's a skeptic in the back. Yeah. Um, in this book, you talk about the bathtub. Yep. Why is that something that we should be thoroughly depressed about? <laughs> <laughs> well, you shouldn't necessarily be depressed about your own personal bathtub, but here's the analogy. We are adding CO2 to the atmosphere. That's the flow of water into the tub. If you stabilize the flow of water in, you are still going to have that tub overflow. Why? Uh, because the water levels keep rising. Because it's not flowing right? out. <laughs> it's not flowing out as fast as it's flowing in. And what you need to do is get these emissions down to zero in order to get the water level stabilized and eventually 
hopefully get that water level down from where we are today, from the 400 parts per million to 350, 300, and even below. Because it takes a very long time for carbon dioxide to disappear. Exactly. All right. So, I mean, until very, very recently, right, for the mathematically inclined, the increase in the increase was still increasing. Right? The water levels are increasing at an increasing rate, and that increasing rate was increasing. Uh, Now, here's the hopeful news. Turns out last year, for the very first time ever, emissions stabilized without an economic recession. So the increase in the increase is no longer increasing. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, back to the bathtub, the water is still rising. The CO2. The CO2 is still rising, right? Emissions levels now are stable, and of course, they ought to be and come down, but they are not yet down to zero, right? We are still adding CO2 to the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. The only way of avoiding the tub from overflowing is to turn off the spigot, right? Turn off the inflow entirely, decrease emissions down to zero, and then basically open open the sink. In this country, we have a huge debate about whether there really is man-made climate change. Yep. Okay. Complete bogus debate, right? (laughs) But But among scientists, among climate scientists, is there any debate at all among (laughs) the experts? Well, if you lived in the 19th century, I'm I'm sure there was, but no, not, not at this point. So the only debate is over the extent of the threat. Exactly. I think they're wrong about the science, but here's where a lot of this is coming from. Did you go to the climate march? I skipped it because I was stuck in an office. (laughs) uh, I did. You had the U.S. Socialist Party, the Mm -hmm. U.S. Communist Party, the Maoist Party. You you know, (laughs) you had every wacko far left group in the world out there saying capitalism causes climate change. We need to destroy capitalism to solve the problem. So for people who like free, you don't have to be conservative, just mainstream. People who like the free market. People who like free markets think free markets reduce poverty and make life better. Yep. They look at this and they see a bunch of people grabbing onto the issue of climate change who always wanted the government to completely take over the economy. (laughs) Now all of a sudden they have a new argument. It used to be workers' rights or other things. So the left has taken over this. That freaks out people on the right. And I think just as it should, (laughs) you know, and so when we pivot in the show to solutions, how do we convince uh, people who like free markets that we can do something about CO2 emissions without it actually becoming sort of a surreptitious way of reengineering the economy in the way that that the far left has always wanted with the government takeover of property and and huge reductions in individual rights? Yep. That's the completely wrong answer. What do we need to do this? Well, we need new technologies. We need more energy-efficient technologies. How do you get them? Not by going back to the caves. So what you need to do is essentially re-channel market forces from this high-carbon, low-efficiency path we are currently on, and we are, to a low-carbon, high-efficiency one. And how do you do that? Well, you set the right incentives, and then you get out of the way. It's not the bureaucrats in Washington who will invent the future on this one. They will set the right incentives by pricing CO2. But then it's Silicon Valley, frankly, that's going to do this for the rest of us. So so, so walk us through that, the idea of pricing carbon. Because at the moment, you say, and you say this in, in your book, Climate Shock, that we that carbon is actually subsidized. <laughs> it the, is. The, yeah. and, and, and you want to reverse that. I mean, we are not even getting the sign right on this one, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, for, the arrow is the wrong way. Forget what the red number is supposed to be, right? So we are subsidizing fossil fuels to the tune of half a trillion 
dollars a year, right? Trillion here, trillion there, soon enough you're talking about real money. Half a trillion bucks. So on average, that's a subsidy for each ton of CO2 emitted globally of $15 per ton. What do we need to do? Well, we need to do the exact opposite. We need to price CO2. And no, it's not about sticking it to the man, right? It's about sticking it to CO2. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, the, the, the logic couldn't be more compelling, right? So look, every time I board a plane, I go from JFK to San Francisco and back. Mm-hmm. That causes one ton of CO2 emissions. I think a lot of people right? would be shocked to find out in a sense, how heavy CO2 is. You know what I mean? You think it's just one plane, right? How could it be a ton of CO2? Yeah. Well, by the way, it's not the plane. It's you personally. Right. It's your personal contribution by flying across the country. Average American has 20 tons of CO2. Average European, 10. I'm a dual citizen, so I get 30. Um, I mean, basically, right, it's each of these flights, one ton of CO2. Now, I pay for the ticket, and I get the benefit of going there. Now, who pays for the cost of the damage that my one ton of CO2 will be causing everybody else, all 7 billion of us so, so are paying this, for my privilege to go there. So this is what economists call an externality. Exactly. Uh, that's the, right, it's a negative externality, a negative spillover if you will, to use sort of a, a less ner- nerdy term. Uh, but, well, who pays for their costs? Well, it turns out we socialize these costs. Mm-hmm. So this is back to your question, Jim, about uh, capitalism, mm-hmm. right? So what we do right now, well, we privatize the benefits. I get the benefit of flying to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. For a relatively um, cheap price. Exactly, right? Uh, now, we socialize the costs. Right, right. We don't, in fact, live in a capitalist system in that sense. So when we look at these externalities, then the challenge becomes – how do you find a fair way to, for everybody to share the cost? But first, you've got to convince them <laughs> that this doesn't look like a cost to a lot of people. They get to drive cars and fly in planes and heat their houses. The costs seem quite hypothetical to people right now. Unfortunately, they are, right? I mean, yeah. frankly, this is why climate change is the perfect problem, if you will. Right? Because the, 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 the risk of a disaster is beyond my lifetime. Well, it's more long-term, right, than most problems. It's more global, global warming, right, than most problems. It's more irreversible in the sense that, right, the kind of stuff we do today mm-hmm. causes stuff that can't be changed hundreds of years from now right. when it sort of hits home, right? Irreversible. And, yeah, it's more uncertain than most problems, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, so let's look at solutions. Now, one thing we've talked about is pricing carbon, either through a carbon tax, which is actually what your co-author wants, or cap and trade, um, which is a form of carbon trading that I believe you're in favor of. But the idea is to, is to tax carbon. Let's, let's look at some other things as well as, as taxing carbon. What is the role that can be played by renewable energy, by green energy? Because we've had a real change in literally the last few years, for instance, in the price of solar panels. It's much cheaper to get a solar panel and pop it on your roof than it used to be. I mean, much cheaper is a, is a slight uh, understatement here. So it turns out the cost of solar decreased 80% the last five years. Eight zero. Eight zero. exactly. That is huge, right? Um, and, well, what does that do? What we see now is these, uh, these alternatives are so cheap that now it is purely based on your own personal profit motive. It already pays to look at these alternatives, the low-carbon, high-efficiency world we all right. like mm-hmm. to, to live in. Uh, now, what does a price on CO2 do? 
while it encourages that even more so. So this is back to this first best economist stance of saying, let's price CO2 and get out of the way. And then, well, in some sense, whatever comes up, right? Whatever is the most cost-effective solution to decrease CO2 emissions. And frankly, it does turn out that just based on pure economics, this is not about liking one versus the other, pure economics, solar energy has decreased in price by 80% and by now has, in many areas, achieved sort of the holy grail of great parity, i.e. it is cheaper than any alternative out there. Cheaper than oil, cheaper than coal. Cheaper than oil, cheaper than coal, and cheaper than nuclear in this case, too. Let's look at individuals. What can we do? Now, you're a good environmentalist, right? I mean, tell me about your lifestyle. You don't even drive a car. I don't have a license. I I couldn't (laughs) drive one if I wanted to, turns out. And you walked to the studio today. (laughs) I did walk to the studio, yes. And Um, you use a bicycle a lot. I do own a bike, yes. (laughs) That's true. And, And you don't eat a lot of meat. Or any meat. I, right? I don't eat any meat, turns out. Yes, I'm vegetarian, right? And I carry around this sort of beat-up water bottle everywhere I go and teach my four-year-old to turn up the water when he brushes his teeth. Yes, of course. Now, but, but, does but, any of this make a difference? Yeah, does it matter? <laughs> uh, well, the short answer is no. We can't solve global warming by recycling, right? We kind of know that. That's not a secret. Uh, now, here's the bigger question, right? Now, does any of this stuff, in fact, lead to more... Or is it a distraction from what we really need to be doing? Look, okay, I live and breathe this stuff, right? This is my job. So I like to think me not driving or not eating meat does not, in fact, prevent me from then talking about the right things when it comes to pricing CO2 or doing sort of acting on the policy level. So the average person out there does not think about climate change 24-7. I hope not, right? It's pretty depressing most days of the week. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so now you get someone's attention, right? Do you sort of, quote-unquote, waste that by telling them to recycle more or refuse the plastic bag? Or do you take the opportunity and talk about what really matters, how to actually fix it? So So I separate my trash. I spend some time on that. What you're really saying is, Richard, instead of separating your trash, sign some petitions. Yeah. Or sign the petitions while you're separating your, your trash. <laughs> so, okay, so how do we do this? I mean, let's say you're the, the political consulting company that's been hired to engineer the program to launch a global carbon pricing regimen. How do we do it? How do we sell it? But also, what does it look like? Uh, well, back to your earlier question about um, is this about revamping capitalism? Well, so here's, here's the good news. No this is not about changing the way we live, period. What it is, is changing this devastating path we are on right now, this high carbon, low efficiency one, to a much, much better one. And turns out we can point to plenty of positive examples already of countries, states, that have a price of CO2 and right, newsflash, life goes on. Now talk about <laughs> the California example. So for example, right, California by some measures the eighth largest economy in and of itself, right, has in fact a firm cap of greenhouse gas emissions, majority of, of its greenhouse gas emissions. There is a price on CO2 now and other greenhouse gases to the tune of like 12 or so dollars per ton of CO2. And yeah, life goes on. So let's look finally at the takeaways from your book, um, are there a few things that you feel that people 
should hopefully, or you'd like people to learn from from what you've been doing here with this, with 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 climate shock. I mean, the, the main conclusion is what we know is bad and should have prompted us to act a long time ago, frankly. But what we don't know, the known unknowns or unknown unknowns, if you will, um, potentially much much worse. All right, so it's the stuff that we don't know that really ought to prompt us to action here. Gernot Wagner, thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I didn't really know about this before I started podcasting, and that's the importance of downloading. And downloading is a really good thing if you find us, if you want to stay with us and your Wi-Fi coverage, your internet coverage isn't that good. If you download the show, you keep it on your smartphone. Right. Obviously, that makes it portable. And if you can subscribe to our channel, that's that's great, too. Yeah, that really helps us. Thanks. So, Richard, this is a... First of all, fascinating conversation, something I've been thinking about and talking about my whole life, practically, and yet still a challenging one for me. You know, I'm, as you know, I'm always somebody who thinks that free markets are usually the best way to organize human activity. It's the best for the poor, creates the most opportunity, the most freedom, but there are some limits to that. The idea of a carbon tax makes huge economic sense. I do worry that, like any tax, it falls most heavily on working people. I used to be editor of Popular Mechanics. I know guys who drive pickups 40 miles to work in Montana. Another extra 40 cents a gallon is means a lot to them. Can we really trust our government to implement a carbon tax in a way that really is revenue neutral? Will they really cut other taxes at the same amount? And are we, um, do, do we, do we trust that? Yeah, that's that's a question. But does it mean that we should not act because we're worried that our policymakers may not act as fairly as they should? Right. You know, I mean, that's really a separate question. But what I'm trying to get at is I'm not a climate skeptic, but I have a little bit of sympathy for some of them. I think some are just profoundly anti-scientific. It's one thing to say there's some doubt here. It's another thing to say, like, I'm sure they don't know what they're talking about. Well, that's being sure just because the data is a little bit vague is not a scientific position. Well, personal disclosure, I'm passionately opposed to people who think there's no problem at all. And that's because of my wife. Uh, She works for the Environmental Defense Fund. And Uh, When it comes to looking at the environmental movement, it's easy to condemn some people way off on the left as being crazy. But Environmental Defense Fund, that I've I've learned this from my wife, very much a pragmatic organization that looks for answers in the free market as well as potentially regulation. Right. No, they've always been the centrist organization. And I think and then and as I mentioned, they've come in for some flack sometimes from other environmentalists because they're. There, there's two types of env- environmentalism to me. There's a pragmatic side that looks at what's happening and tries to find the most efficient way to fix it. That's like EDF. Then there's the romantic side, like Bill McKibb and a lot of others, who imagine a a past that was wonderful and agrarian and 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 non-industrial and and there's this great nostalgia. It's almost like something from Rousseau uh, for this this beautiful untrammeled life that never really existed. No, and we have to remember that in the past 10 to 15 years, global capitalism, the the very thing that many people hate and are march against, has brought down childhood 
uh, malnutrition, poverty, yeah, has, disease. Has, you know, the number of people in, around the world who live in extreme poverty is far lower than it was 15, 20, 30 years ago. Right. And that's because of this controversial system that we have, global capitalism. It's really amazing that a system that has brought so much good to so many is still so roundly condemned by the people who have the most. The condemnation of capitalism tends to, to center in very rich countries. <laughs> so I think that part of the argument, by no means the whole argument, but part of the argument that Gernot made this week is that capitalism, that, that the free market can be used to help. It's not the whole answer, but right. it can be used to help mitigate climate change. And I think he makes a really strong case that this is a problem unlike previous problems. You know, it used to be water pollution, air pollution. You could see the effects. You could smell it. You know, dead fish. It was very immediate and, and, and local. This is global. It's not at all immediate. I think sometimes skeptics get upset that people exaggerate. You know, every time there's a tornado, it's like, well, this is climate change. It's really never so clear. People, they, sometimes people try to make it sound more immediate than it is. But just because it's not immediate doesn't mean it's not real. And the, where his focus is, I think it's really important, there's the linear kind of impact, you know, where we say, okay, if there's this much carbon, it'll have this effect. You know, okay, this doesn't look too bad. But as you start to get into the more remote case, that 10% case, the impact starts to go way up. And 10% is not doesn't mean oh we don't have to worry very much 10 percent is a high if you had a 10 percent risk of a plane crashing you know if somebody said that there's a 10 percent risk that somewhere in the united states today a plane is going to crash no one would get on an airplane that day yeah absolutely <laughs> i think it's the strongest <laughs> argument for doing something about climate uh, risk uh, reduction and insurance good show jim all right well listen thanks for joining us this is how do we fix it i'm jim meggs and i'm richard davies the show produced by miranda schaefer our engineer denise barbarita at the wonderful what do you say mono lisa studio mono lisa studios in beautiful uptown Manhattan. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Davies Content. We make podcasts and digital audio for businesses and nonprofits. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.